handle the marriage feast, Matthew 22, verse 1. And Jesus, Yeshua, answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, actually in Greek the word there is initially a man, who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent out his servants to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. And again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat and livestock are all butchered. Everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those servants went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, notice both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. And the king said to his servant, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him to out of darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's understand, first of all, the nature of a parable. The latest book by the person that Roger... Oakland have been talking about a lot, myself somewhat, Brian McLaren, is his book on parables. And in his book on parables, McLaren teaches his followers in the emergent church the following. The key to interpreting a parable is to use your imagination. To use your imagination. Now this is pure Gnosticism. This is pure Gnosticism. You can imagine anything. You can read anything into the Word of God, asegetically instead of exegetically. Pure Gnosticism, that's what he says the key is, you imagine. In other words, you subjectively assign your own meaning based on what you dream up. Well, the Bible says something different. Study to show yourself approved. We study the Sitzim Laban, we look at the original meaning, the context, the original languages, and then we trust the Holy Spirit to illuminate the meaning to us spiritually. God has a different approach to biblical interpretation and hermeneutics than the emergent church. You either believe the Lord's method or you believe man's. Unfortunately, many people are believing man's. We're going to look at the Lord's. Let's understand the nature of a parable. In Hebrew, a term for a proverb is called a mashal. Mashal is a proverb in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the book of Proverbs is called Mishlei. Mishlei, the book of Proverbs. The interpretation of a proverb is called a nimshal. Usually it's the first half of the verse is the marshal, the second half the nimshal. Like a gold ring through a swine's nose, that's the marshal, is a beautiful woman without discretion, that's the nimshal. Like apples of gold in a setting of silver, marshal is a prudent word fittingly spoken, nimshal. Example of something from everyday life that conveys a spiritual principle. What a parable would have been in the day of Jesus, the way rabbis taught, a parable would have been an elongated mashal put into the form of a story. It would have been an elongated mashal put into the form of a story. Now the Gentile church has different ways of looking at this academically, but in the context of Jesus' day, many rabbis taught in parables. Jesus was no different. His name was Rabbi Yeshua, Bar Yosef, Min, etc. 
But when you look at a parable, we look at it the way it was in the culture. Never, ever, ever base a doctrine on a type or allegory. That is Gnosticism. That's mysticism. You use typology and allegory, however, to illustrate doctrine. This is called Midrash. For instance, I would never base the doctrine of atonement on the Lord's Supper, but the symbology of the Passover Seder demonstrates the doctrine of atonement. It illuminates it. You'll understand it in a much clearer, much, with much more depth if you understand how Jesus fulfills the Passover Seder. You use the symbolism to illustrate and illuminate the doctrine. The simple, straightforward meaning of a parable is called a peshet. A peshet, from the Hebrew word pashut, meaning simple. Now it's not only for parables, but now we're dealing with parables. The straightforward meaning is the peshet, the simple, straightforward meaning. But the deeper spiritual meaning is the Pesher, the Pesher interpretation is the spiritual meaning. Let's understand how the New Testament uses this. Look at Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 please. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. Hosea writes about the Exodus. In its grammatical historical context, he's talking about the Exodus of the Jews where he says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. That is the peshet, the simple, straightforward meaning. He's talking about the exodus of the Jews. But then Matthew gives us the pesher interpretation. In the infancy narrative, when Jesus was born, we have a citation of this verse. When the New Testament quotes the Old as a prophecy and says this fulfills that, it's called the formula citation. And when King Herod dies, Jesus says, out of Egypt, I'm sorry, Matthew writes, out of Egypt that I call my son. God judges Pharaoh, destroys a wicked king, and Israel comes out of Egypt. That is recapitulated with Jesus. God judges Herod, destroys a wicked king, and Jesus comes out of Egypt. One is the shadow of the other. The simple, straightforward, literal meaning of Hosea 11.1 1 is the peshet. When it's messianically applied to Christ, it's a pesher interpretation. If you want to know why the New Testament handles the Old Testament the way it does, it's using Jewish midrash. It is the same thing you see in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The New Testament handles the Old Testament the same as it does in the Dead Sea Scrolls. A lot of liberal higher critics try to say that the New Testament takes the Old Testament out of context because they're limiting themselves to Western grammatical historical exegesis. They're not looking at the culture of first century Judaism where the church came from. There's a guy named James Barr who claims to be a former evangelical. He's a professor at Oxford and he tells people, look at just look at this, how the New Testament takes the Old Testament out of context. The Bible's not meant to be taken literally. Well, it is meant to be taken literally, properly interpreted. There's a peshet and there's a pesha. It co-equally means the exodus, but it also co-equally means Jesus. You have a peshet and a pesha. That's simple background, but let's go a bit further. Let's understand the nature of a Jewish wedding in the time of Jesus. 
A Jewish wedding in the time of Jesus was not like ours. It had three phases. All were important, all were required culturally and legally. The first was betrothal. Betrothal was not like our engagement. It was legally binding. That's why Joseph would have had to give Mary a bill of divorce. Betrothal was legally binding. Usually it would take place at Passover time, not necessarily. The bridegroom would go away for about a year, about a year, and he would build an annex onto his father's house. His father would carry out an inspection and tell him when to go back. The son would not know the exact day. The bride would not know the exact day. They would simply know that he had to do it because he entered a covenant. Marriage was a covenant. Every covenant required a sacrifice. The Last Supper, Jesus makes a covenant. This is my blood poured out for the new covenant. The Last Supper was a Passover Seder. It was a covenant meal following an ancient Near Eastern suzerainty rite. It was a covenant meal. It was a betrothal, legally binding. It was more than an engagement. It's like certain states in America, you can be sued for breach of contract if you break off an engagement without a good reason. It was legally binding. About a year would go by, <clears throat> and the bridegroom would come back when his father sent him. He wouldn't know the day or the hour. This was the nuptial. The nuptial. At the nuptial, of course, they would slaughter animals for the sacrifice, as we read in Matthew 22. Again, you have to have a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. It's covenant. They get married under something called a hoopah, a banner from the Song of Solomon, his banner over me, his love. The bridegroom goes away, builds the place, his father sends him back. The bride would not know the day or the hour. She would simply know approximately the time of year. She would know he had to come back, and she would know it would be when things got dark. It would always be in the night. In the Song of Solomon, the bridegroom comes in the night. Jesus said, I'm coming like a thief in the night. Work while you have the light, night will come, no man can work. Is he coming in the second watch of the night or the third? There's this tremendous spiritual darkness that happens at the end of the age when Jesus comes back to take his bride out of here. Now, the Song of Solomon is read at Easter time, that Saturday of Easter week, or Passover week. And the Song of Solomon in chapter three, the bride is ready for the bridegroom to come. In chapter five, she's not. Chapter three, it's her best dream. Chapter five, it's her worst nightmare. Jesus took what was being read that very week in the synagogue and applied it to himself. That's the wise and foolish virgins of Matthew 25. When he comes back, it's going to be people's best dream or worst nightmare, depending if the bride is faithful enough. That's the nuptial. Then, at some point, what relatives would come from all over, the, 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 the celebration would go on for some days, and at some point, the couple would slip away, and then they would consummate their marriage. This would be called Akdut. Difficult to translate, but I would translate it oneness, oneness. They asked Jesus the greatest commandment, and Jesus said, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ahad Baruch Shem Kvodo Omachuto Leolam Va'ed 
ואחרתך את אדוני אלוקיך עם כל לבביך, כל נפשך ובכל מודיך. Jesus said, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is oneness. God is a plural oneness. If it was just a single, it would have been Yahid, but instead it's a chad, a plural oneness. This is the same term used for Adam and Eve. They should become one flesh, a chad, a plural oneness. We are imagio dei beings made in God's image and likeness. God is triune, that is why we have a body, a soul, and a spirit. But it is also why Adam and Eve were made in his image and likeness. The Hebrew idiom for consummating a marriage is Niknas Ba. You see this in like Ruth and things like this, Niknas Ba. And he went into her. He went into her. When you consummate a marriage, one person goes inside of another and a third is procreated. It's one in three, it's three in one. It reflects the image and likeness of our creator. That is why one of the reasons God hates divorce. The permanency of a Christian marriage is to testify, to the, is to testify and reflect the eternal oneness of the Godhead. We're made in his image and likeness. He hates divorce. We're supposed to be reflecting his image and likeness. His eternal oneness is to be reflected in a Christian marriage. God hates divorce because it, it's, it's distorting an image of himself. One goes inside of another and the third is procreated. This is Ahdut. Ahdut. So you had three phases of a marriage. All three had to take place for the marriage to be valid. Now you understand the ramifications of the Roman Catholic heresy of the perpetual virginity of Mary. It would mean that Mary and Joseph were not legally married within that culture. How dishonoring to marry Joseph and Jesus to say that Jesus' parents were not properly married. The Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary is not only unbiblical, but quite dishonoring to Mary. The term Theotokos, mother of God, is not even found in the Bible. It's an absurdity. How can God have a mother? Nonetheless, we have these three phases. Each of these phases, again, required blood. The first, you had the covenant meal, the Last Supper. The second, you had the sacrifice of the animals being butchered for the meal. And the third would have been the shattering of the hymen membrane when the marriage was consummated. All three required blood. But all three were important theologically and eschatologically. Okay? Betrothal had to do with an initiation of a covenant. It's when the covenant was initiated. Initiation. Nuptial had to do with convocation. Witnesses had to come to the marriage. These correspond to the witnesses to the romance between Solomon and Shulamit in the Song of Solomon. But it had to be documented. There was a ketubah, a wedding document, a wedding contract that's still read, read out at a wedding by Orthodox Jews. Well, the new covenant is like a ketubah. It's the legal document between Jesus and his bride. It's a ketubah. Ardut would be consummation. 
So you had initiation, convocation, and consummation. But eschatologically, the betrothal is first coming of Christ. Mucho parousia, the return of Christ. Abdut speaks of the, the uh, intimacy that Christ will have with his bride in eternity in the book of Revelation. It speaks of eternity, the bride adorned for her husband. Marital intimacy and romance reflects the intimacy Christ desires with his bride in eternity. One is a reflection of another. Now again, the bride is corporate. Avoid the Roman Catholic heresy of nuns being the bride of Christ. That is a complete perversion. Initiation, convocation, consummation. His first coming, his return, eternity. Betrothal, nuptial, akdut. All three were required. That is the background of Matthew 22. Using her imagination has nothing to do with it. Now let's look at the peshit, the straightforward meaning. The straightforward meaning of this, the peshit, is the prophecy of events that would happen in 70 AD. Daniel prophesied the Messiah would come before the second temple would be destroyed. Except for a faithful remnant, most Jews rejected their own Messiah. And so he sends his servants to the Gentiles, Greco-Roman world at that time. The king was enraged following the martyrdom of the apostle James, Josephus tells us, the siege of Jerusalem took place in 70 AD. He sends his servants to invite other people to the wedding, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, as it were. The king was enraged, he became angry. God gave Israel over to destruction in 70 AD, fulfilling the prophecies of Daniel and of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. That is a simple, straightforward, peshit interpretation. He sends his servants out to his own people. They don't want to come. He goes to other people after they persecute his servants. That's the simple meaning. It happened literally in 70 AD. But notice two groups of servants are not sent out. Uh, not, not one group of servants are sent out. Two. And they're not sent out for the first coming. They're sent out for the nuptial, the second. We already know what it meant for the first coming, the Peshat, 70 AD, it happened. We have to understand what it means for the coming marriage supper of the Lamb, the Pesha, the further eschatological meaning. Two groups of servants are sent out. First he goes to the Jews, then the Gentiles, that's fair enough. This corresponds to what Matthew 24 calls the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Paul personalizes the gospel and calls it my gospel. Elsewhere, it's the gospel of salvation. And Isaiah 52 or Ephesians 6 is the gospel of peace. But eschatologically, we are called to preach the gospel of the kingdom. What is this? The gospel of the kingdom is again when the gospel is preached with a sense of eschatological urgency. It is when you use prophecy to see people get saved. 
Whether you like the Left Behind books or not, they've sold over 60 million copies. A lot of people read them. Why are those books so successful? Because he's doing what Jesus said. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's using eschatology as an evangelistic tool. The late great planet Earth, in my opinion, was a gross oversimplification of eschatology. But a lot of people were saved through that book in the 1970s. A lot of people. Why? It preached the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. We see the gospel of the kingdom most clearly in Matthew, where you have the biggest version of the Olivet Discourse, where you have the kingship theme, and where Jesus speaks about hell three times as much as he does heaven. John the Baptist preached the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. The gospel of the kingdom is when we use eschatology, end times prophecy, to evangelize. Now, because that's what Jesus said to do, when you see these things happening, the gospel of the kingdom must be preached. Satan is going to raise up people who say, don't do that. And he's raised up one today called Rick Warren, telling people not to do what Jesus said. Why do unsaved people go to astrologers and fortune tellers? Why does Nancy Reagan go to, go, go to Jean Dixon to tell her husband how to run the country when he was president? Why, why, why did Nancy Reagan think? Why, why, why do people go to the occult? Because they want to know the future. Well, the fact of the matter is, we know the future. We know how mankind will end up. We know how events in the Middle East will end. We know how the church will end. We know the future. When you use end times prophecy to evangelize, you're using something that draws people. They want to know the future, but they're going to counterfeits. They should be coming to the church. So therefore, they should be coming to the church to find out what's going to happen. Rick Warren says, no, don't tell them that. That man is a deceiver. Listen to Jesus, not Rick Warren. Preach the gospel of the kingdom. Europe is post-Christian and neo-pagan. America, most of it is going the same way. How do you evangelize a post-Christian, neo-pagan culture? A post-modern culture. Not with the emergent church, but by following the instructions of Jesus using end times prophecy to evangelize. That's what we need to do. That's what Jesus told us to do. It works. Barry Smith did it. Hal Lindsey did it. Tim LaHaye does it. It works. I'm not saying any of those guys are doctrinally or theologically perfect, but at least they're following the instructions. They're doing what Jesus said, and it works. Recently, spiritual attacks on innocent people have increased considerably. This is partly due to society's transformation into a satanic cult. Most people are clueless or hopeless in combating this spiritual mayhem. We wish to offer two good books to overcome these attacks. First, Demons in My Marriage Bed, a true story of spiritual warfare, offers one of the most effective training systems in combating spiritual darkness in order to gain personal freedom. Second, Eyes to See Unseen Enemies teaches how to see the hidden dangers which are all around us, even in places we would least expect them. Both books can be purchased on Amazon.com as a paperback or ebook. It is our desire that you will take advantage of these opportunities to increase your effectiveness in spiritual warfare and learn how to fight back instead of being a victim. We'll see you on the battlefield. The second group of servants have a different message. The first group of servants come to the wedding, respond to see who play. The second group of servants have a different message. 
The king commands you to get in here. A sense of urgency. Kings don't invite, they decree. First it says a man, then it says a king. <laughs> a man can invite, a king decrees. The king said, you better get in here. God commands men to repent. Forget this seeker-sensitive, seeker-friendly garbage. It's not biblical and it doesn't work. If people don't know law, they will never understand grace. If they don't know they're lost, they'll never know how good it is to be found. The king commands. I don't mean the turn or burn stuff. That's preaching at people, not to them. But it is appointed to man once to die. After this, the judgment. Keep away from the seeker-sensitive trash. It's not biblical. Preach the gospel of the kingdom. You tell unsaved people, look, you see what's happening in the Middle East? Look what Jesus said was going to happen. Look, look at Iran. Look at Daniel 10. Daniel said this was going to happen. Look, look at the environment. It says in Revelation, let us destroy those who are destroying the earth. Look, look at this, the globalization of the world economy. Look, look, look. We know the future. Nostradamus doesn't know the future. It's a vague manner of interpretation how you handle Nostradamus or the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but the Bible is direct. It tells us direct, specific things. The prophecies of his first coming were literally fulfilled, and the prophecies of his second coming are being literally fulfilled. That is what we need to do. But what happens when these second group of servants go out? We see the reaction. What are people like? First thing we see is, They go out with the invitations, but they paid no attention in verse 5. What is increasingly happening in most of the Western world is a spirit of apathy. Apathy. It begins with apathy. Not interested. More concerned with other things. Following the apathy, however, they paid no attention and went their own way. Now, to a Jew, this would jump off the page from them, right from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. When people stop going God's way, they will go their own way. That works for you. Remember Laodicea, Laodicea, my people's opinions. What is the whole purpose-driven model founded on? Peter Drucker's ideas of marketing and psychology. It's people's ideas. They're going their own way. They're not following a biblical model. It's their own way. Now, when the church goes its own way, what do you expect from secular society? They're going their own way. They've got their own ideas. Third thing that happens, one went to his farm. We looked at this yesterday. 
people becoming consumed with temporal concerns. Just think of modern society. The two most prestigious and best paid professions in the modern world are generally law and medicine. Dentistry, generally speaking. They're the most difficult faculties or postgraduate schools to get into. They pay the best, even though there's a lot of years and a lot of investment. In the end, they have the highest remuneration as law and medicine. My children are Jewish, so I gave them a choice. I said, after college, I could put you through law school, I could put you through medical school, I could put you through dental school, or I could put you through the wall. What's it going to be? <laughs> I got my daughter a job as a legal translator. She did, went to law school in France and she was translating and for 14 hours work she was paid $3,000. I got my son a job with David Lister jumping in giant metal containers called dumpster diving and unloading stacks of phone books for $7 an hour or something. So why did my sister get paid $3,000 and I get paid $7 an hour? So you see what happens to Jewish boys who don't go to law school? <laughs> That's the kind of guy I am. But of these two most prestigious professions, the only reason we need lawyers or need doctors is because of sin, because man has fallen. If man was not fallen, we wouldn't need doctors, we wouldn't need dentists, we wouldn't need lawyers, we wouldn't need prison guards, we wouldn't need policemen, we wouldn't need undertakers, we wouldn't need evangelists. We wouldn't need a lot of things but we would still need farmers. God put Adam in the garden to tend it and take care of it. Man was not to work by the sweat of his brow, but he was to work. Agriculture was the most harmonious and natural profession there could be. It was the first livelihood God ordained. Nothing wrong with farming, but when people become consumed with it, I'm too busy with my farm. I'm too busy with my business. I'm too busy with my career. I'm too busy with my hobby. This is what we warned about yesterday in the days of Noah. People become consumed, absorbed with temporal concerns. One went to his farm, another went to his business. Now again, if the church fails in its mission, what do we expect from society? What used to be the Christian music ministry is now a Christian music in industry. Most Christian recording companies are owned by secular conglomerates. Based in Nashville, Tennessee, most of the publishing houses are secularly owned, not all, but most. They've got pop charts, they've got radio stations. Christian bookshops will sell any kind of junk as long as it sells. Doesn't matter if it's doctrinally right or not, they're not running ministries, they're running businesses. Most Christian publishing companies, like Zondervan, are secularly owned now. The word of God is being prostituted by money preachers on television. One of them just gave up the ghost yesterday. They publicly disgraced the gospel. Well, this is the church. 
What do we expect from the world? When consumerism invades the church, what do you expect from the world? Again, the whole purpose-driven agenda, the whole seeker-friendly agenda, it's based on marketing. Marketing and marketing psychology. It is not based on scripture. And ultimately, it does not end in biblical spirituality. It ends in New Age philosophy. But let's continue. It begins with apathy, but then look what happens. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. It begins with apathy. It ends with persecution. I looked at our electronic newsletter be alert last night. Two pastors and five other Christians, seven, were arrested for praying publicly near a gay and lesbian rally. And another one in Elmira, New York, they were arrested for giving out gospel tracts. A policeman told Christians, you are not to go into that park and you are not to give out gospel tracts or propagate your religion, and they arrested seven of them. This is in America. A grandmother, two grandmothers, 170, 175, were arrested in Philadelphia. England is worse, Europe is worse, democracy is disappearing. As I've said, America has turned its principles back on the, on the biblical principles that forged its identity and its, and its models of government, economy, culture, and now the freedom that that engendered is disappearing quickly. Most Americans wanted the Ten Commandments of the Judicial Building in Alabama. Ronald Reagan's appointee, Senator Day O'Connor, a Reagan Republican, said, no, you can't have the Ten Commandments in the Judicial Building. And she's a conservative Republican, supposedly, pro-abortion appointed by Reagan. Supreme Court thinks it's a supreme being. They're not going to protect our rights. Remember, Jesus warned you to be brought before magistrates and kings. He put magistrates first. We are going into an age of judicial fascism. Politicians don't want to handle the hot potatoes anymore. If I'm pro-abortion, I'll lose votes. If I'm against abortion, I'll lose votes. We'll let the courts decide. They don't have to worry about getting elected. That is what has happened. In Europe and in America, we're moving into judicial fascism. They are allowing unelected judges to make the real decisions that are going to govern our lives. And you'll have nothing to say about it. The supreme being known as the Supreme Court, has spoken. Sorry, you can't have prayer in the schools. Sorry, an unborn child has no rights. Sorry, you can't have the Ten Commandments anymore. It begins with apathy. It ends with persecution. Once this happens, it says the king was displeased. No, it says the king was enraged and he gets his armies. Now we have to understand his armies. Let's go back to the Peshit. In 70 AD, he got the Romans. The way God has always dealt with his people is getting his armies, but we have to understand who his armies are. In the period of Judges, when the people wouldn't repent, he would get the Philistines as an instrument of judgment. Then when they repented, he'd raise up a Deborah or a Samson or a Gideon or somebody like that to get rid of them. Once they did their job, he'd get rid of them. Another time he used the Assyrians. Then he used the Babylonians to get rid of them. Then when his people wouldn't repent, he used the Babylonians. He uses the Persians to get rid of them. 
He always gets somebody worse than you are. That's his army. Turn with me, please, to the book of Joel, chapter 2. Yoel Hanavi. There was a guy named Jack Deere who went, went to Dallas Seminary, he was a professor at Dallas Seminary at one time. And he taught the following. He taught Joel's army is the manifest sons, the latter day reign. And he wrote a whole theology to support the Kansas City false prophets. And they were actually singing this. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain from Joel 2. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble. The day of the Lord is coming near. Notice it's about the last days, not just his own day. A day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and darkness. The dawn is spread over the mountains. There's a great and mighty people. There's never been anything like it, nor will there be again to, in many generations. A fire consumes before them, a flame after them. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness after them. And it says they run in the city, they run on the walls. Great is the army who carries his word. This is a prophecy of the Babylonians. They come in four droves. Look at 20, verse 25 of chapter 2. I'll make up to you for the years the swarming locust is eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust. Joel uses insects the way Daniel uses animals. He uses them as metaphors for political entities. Nebuchadnezzar invaded four times. The locusts come four times. They come in the characters, they swarm in, then they creep into everything, then, then they strip whatever's left, and then they discontinue to gnaw. There was four invasions by Nebuchadnezzar. He's giving a prophecy of, Nebuch of, of the Babylonian army. Once God's people repent, however, we see what happens to this army. God says he's going to destroy this army. Verse 20, I'll remove the northern army far from you. I will drive it into a parched land, its vanguard into the eastern sea, its western guard, into, its rear guard into the western sea. Its stench will arise, its foul smell will come up, it's done great things. In its historical setting, in its immediate historical context, it's a prophecy about Babylon, and it was literally fulfilled. Now it happens again eschatologically, the day of the Lord is near. These locusts show up again in Revelation chapter 9. They're the demon cohorts of hell. So they're the Babylonians who God destroys, and then they're the demon cohorts of hell. This is God's great army. I have seen Christians caught up in dominion theology, kingdom now theology, actually singing, we run on the cities, we run on the wall. Great is the army who carries his word. I've seen vineyard churches, John Wimber's people, singing this. We run on the city, we run on the wall. Great is the... They're singing about the demon cohorts of Antichrist. They're singing about the Babylonians. They're singing about an army God is going to judge and destroy, and they think they're singing about themselves. Well, maybe they are. <laughs> who am I to argue? If the vineyard identified themselves with the demon cohorts of hell, they ought to know their identity. Who am I to argue? Maybe they have a point. I don't know. But it's his army. It doesn't mean they're good guys. It's never meant they were good guys. They're simply his instruments of judgment. 
But once they fulfill their purpose, he gets rid of them. Once you begin persecuting his messengers, something has happened. As I warned the other day, you persecute the true church or you persecute the Jews, you've touched the apple of his eye, he's coming after you, you've touched Abraham. Well, now the persecution is coming to the West increasingly. Christians who oppose abortion are being arrested. Kennedy is trying to make a new hate crime bill, limiting free speech of Christians. Now the persecution is coming to America, courtesy of the Democrats and Republicans. What's going to happen? The king sends his army. Who is his army now? Allahu Akbar! I have ties to three countries. The United States, where I was born, a nation I love. Great Britain, where my grandparents were from and where I presently live, a nation I love. And Israel, the ancestral homeland of my family where my children are born, a nation I love. There are no three nations in the world with more of a biblical heritage than Israel, Great Britain, and America. Three backslidden nations that have turned their back on their own heritage. They are all under God's judgment. Islam is God's army of judgment on the backslidden Judeo-Christian world. But once they fulfill their purpose, God gets rid of them. We have unfulfilled prophecies in Isaiah 17 about the destruction of Arab Muslim capitals like Damascus and Amman. As we speak, the stage is being set for Gog and Magog to take place. God's going to destroy these nations once they fulfill their purpose. As his instruments of correction to his own people, God doesn't care about these heathen unless they get saved, but he cares about people who should know better like Christians and Jews. He sends his armies. The more this country turns it back on God, the more it turns against Israel, and the more it begins to persecute Christians, and they're already doing it. Canada is even worse. You're going to see more and more of his army. They will swarm in. They're giving visas. After September 11th, they gave 10,000 visas. Candelisa Rice gave 10,000 visas to Wahhabi Saudi Arabians last year to live in America as students or whatever. It's like giving visas to kamikaze pilots after Pearl Harbor. Why? They swarm in, then they creep in, then they strip everything, then they gnaw. They're buying industries, they're buying corporations. We are under judgment. France is under judgment. England is under judgment. Israel is under judgment. But then, of course, his army, he does to them what he did to the Babylonians, to the Romans, to the Assyrians. But then what happened? The king comes in and he sees the dinner guests. One of them does not have a proper tuxedo or proper attire. No evening gown, no tuxedo or dinner jackets. They do not have what Isaiah calls the garments of salvation. They've not washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. Now notice this. 
The king gets in and says, how did you get in here? There is more to hell than hell. There is more to hell than hell. If I understand this correctly, hell is not just the lake of fire. It's the absence of heaven. This person got in. Somehow the unsaved are going to see the Lord, know what they could have had, and know what they should have had. They get in. He, the guy gets into the thing, gets into the wedding banquet for a fleeting moment, and it's, I don't know, and then gets to boot. Hell will not just be hell. It'll be the absence of heaven. It'll be separation from the presence of the Lord who they will see and know. They will know forever, not just what they have, but what they could have had and should have had. What those whose message they rejected, what those who they persecuted and scorned, will be having forever and ever. One of the lies today is, of course, annihilationism. If you don't accept Jesus and repent when you die, you won't exist anymore. That's what unsaved people believe anyway. What a disincentive to evangelism. But there is a Greek phrase. The Hebrew is olamei olamim. Translated in Greek loosely, enyon to enyones. We translate it variously as forever and ever or literally from age to ages, or world to worlds. This term, olamei olamim anyontoanyones, is used for the eternal high priesthood of Christ, for the eternal glory of God, and for our salvation. It is also the same term used for the smoke of their torment when up forever and ever, anyontoanyones. In other words, if hell is not eternal and conscious, there is no biblical way to prove heaven is either. Hell's a real place. They get in. He actually gets in to the wedding feast and sees what it is, what eternity should be, what it could be, but for him or her, it won't be. There is nobody in hell who doesn't want to repent. Someday, everybody will agree with us. There'll be no Darwinists, there'll be no atheists. They're all gonna agree with us. There'll be no Muslims that will all agree with us. Someday, everybody's gonna agree with us. But thank God for those who've accepted the invitation now. There is more to hell than hell. Many are called. Few are chosen. God bless.